0: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast, Thank you so much for listening. Later on.
1: Black is the color of my true love's hair. My name is Rhiannon Giddens, I am a musician, artist, activist, armchair historian, and I am recording right outside of Limerick, Ireland. Known as the
2: Gate City, Greensboro, North Carolina is a transitional town, hub of the Piedmont between the mountain high country to the west and coastal sandhill plains to the east. Greensboro is also birthplace of one of modern-day Americana's ultimate crossover artists, Rhiannon Giddens. A child of black and white parents, she grew up in Greensboro hearing folk and country music and studied opera singing at Oberlin Conservatory in Ohio. Then she came back to North Carolina to play folk music and forged an artistic identity steeped in classical as well as vernacular music. Greensboro has a rich history as a key civil rights battleground. It's also a music town with the biggest indoor concert venue in the state, Greensboro Coliseum. A mid-sized city of about 300,000 people, it's a natural crossroads where many things, including music, just naturally come together. Located near the state's geographic center, Greensboro occupies both the physical and creative heart of North Carolina. From the bluegrass situation and come here, North Carolina, this is Carolina Calling, a series exploring the history of North Carolina as told through its music and the musicians who made it. I'm David Minconi, and this is Greensboro.
1: so diverse and so interesting there's so many things going on i didn't i don't even realize it until i moved away like how it shaped who i am you know the, the historically black colleges and the you know and the, and the marching bands on one hand and then you've got bluegrass music stuff going on, on the other hand and it's just it's all i was surrounded by a lot of stuff that i realized now was actually quite a, a lot of different facets of southern life i think it's pretty cool offering
2: As North Carolina's Gate City, Greensboro is in many ways defined by the people who have come, gone, and passed through over the
0: years. The city and culture has certainly developed in relationship to the coming and going of people and this kind of a crossroads location. Glenn
2: Perkins, curator of community history at the Greensboro History Museum.
0: We call ourselves the Gate City here, and that's for good reason. People have been coming through this area for thousands of millennia. The Sora and the Kiawe people used this, what's now Guilford County as kind of a crossroads trading path and Catawba and Tuscarora would meet them in this area. And then the, the first white settlers come into the area in the late 18th century down the Great Wagon Road. It's a crossroads where the Battle of Guilford Courthouse gets fought in the Revolutionary War. And it's kind of where they decide to build this administrative center of Guilford County, which eventually becomes called Greensboro. It really doesn't take off until that r- the railroads come through, thanks to Governor Moorhead in the 1850s. That's the big crossroads. That's the one that really brings the people, brings the connections to industry and the economic motivator and a way for people to come into the county
3: who will really help change the place. One of the really interesting things about Greensboro, it has some really interesting relationships with commerce. That's Atiba Berkeley, president of the Piedmont Blues Preservation Society being at the forefront of the furniture industry which is 15 minutes up the road in high point with international home furnishing center and the international furniture market and having cone mills here making the majority of the world's denim at one point really brought a lot of commerce here you know i-85 runs
4: through the carolinas and probably lay down on old indian trading trails that have been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. Tim Duffy of the Music Maker Relief Foundation. And Greensboro is a a center where people came to get work and people built towns and stuff, so it was an obvious place where people could make music and play music, afford guitars and have those kind of communities.
2: As a Crossroads location, Greensboro has long been a way station for many endeavors, including touring musicians. It's ideally situated midway between D.C. and Atlanta, and just about all the biggest acts of the rock era have played 23,000-seat Greensboro Coliseum, North Carolina's largest indoor arena.
5: Living in Greensboro, you felt plugged in in ways that you wouldn't in cities of comparable size.
2: Park Pewterball, a critic and music historian with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
5: The Rolling Stones played at the Greensboro Coliseum. All of the soul icons played at the Greensboro Coliseum. You know, I could go through historic concerts that have been happened here, such as the Monkees with Jimi Hendrix as their opening act in 1967. We kind of took it for granted that the big tours were always going to come through Greensboro. They always did. And it was also an important stop on the Chitlin circuit.
2: For black musicians touring that Chitlin circuit, a network sprang up in Greensboro and other Southern towns. Here's Glenn Perkins from the Greensboro History Museum.
0: Venues associated with Green Book sites, you know, the African-American Travelers Guide that are in Greensboro. So people are passing through. People are meeting each other. People are having a chance to listen to each other and teach each other the songs. I'm not even getting into the textile mill towns, and that's bringing in some, you know, some of the country influences. There's there's string bands associated with some of the textile mill operations. You know, it's just been stirring up for so long here. It's a really interesting place.
2: In Greensboro, music has historically been part of an underground economy as a sideline hustle to local industry. Here is Tim Duffy of the Music Maker Relief Foundation.
4: You have to remember, we're not that far from barter economy in North Carolina was like, the way people did business. That means not changing money for goods. You change goods for goods. The department stores and stuff didn't come in here till the 20s and 30s. So that's not that long ago. Finding a nickel, money was rare. So if there's a tobacco market and you could go play guitar and get some money in your pocket you or, or, or stuff, that was a thing. So if you had a guitar and Trains were everywhere or travel people. These guys traveled the great past. Majority of folk artists and folk musicians had day jobs, were sharecroppers or working, and they just played their music on Friday nights, at maybe at the drink house on Saturday night, and then go to church Sunday morning and play it there and raise their family and work. And guys who were plumbers or factory workers or whatever they did. And that's where these scenes were, and that's where it flourished. The music that inspires the whole world of popular music was created people that were doing music not to make records. They do it because it's part of their culture and their community and a way of expressing themselves.
2: for the music that arose locally, probably the most prominent style is the blues, especially Piedmont blues, the clattery ragtime style that prevailed across North Carolina starting in the 1920s and 30s.
4: Had a girl, she
2: here is Atiba
3: Berkeley, president of the Piedmont Blues Preservation Society. We have a style here, and we're fortunate to have a regional style, which not many parts of the country can claim, which is Piedmont style blues. And so folks like Georgia Tom and Blind Boy Fuller were able to get radio play. Blind Boy Fuller, for example, was inducted into the North Carolina Music Hall of Fame in 2018, I believe. He had, in his last five years of life, recorded over a hundred singles, all of which charted on the radio in five years. And things like that were part of the beginning of people falling in love with the style and wanting it for their own. People started requesting records so that they could play them. It's kind of the beginning of self-selected music in America, uh, in the home, listening when anytime you wanted to what you wanted. A lot of that started with the blues, Along with the beginning and establishment of like record labels so that people could control the commodity that was this music that was now getting advertising dollars on radio and record sales. Here in Greensboro, North Carolina, we've had a long legacy of blues being part of that cultural revolution. North Carolina and Greensboro specifically had a lot of textile business before in the industrial revolution. Before that, it was, you know, largely still a farming community.
2: One reason for the prominence of blues and R&B in Greensboro is the presence of historically black colleges and universities like North Carolina A&T. They created audiences for the music and also an art-savvy population that saw the value of arts and education. Here's Park Pewterball.
5: You know, we have one of the great historically black universities, or actually a couple of them, in North Carolina A&T and Bennett College. So there is a prospering club scene in and around A and on Market Street, places like the El Rocco Club, the Carletta Club, where you know if you were in the blues, R and B, or soul field, you would play Greensboro. And Greensboro offered receptive, enthusiastic audiences for that type of music. Rhiannon
2: Giddens was among the many local artists to avail themselves of music education opportunities in
4: Greensboro.
1: Well, I don't know how good the programs are in other places, but I am a poster child for the arts and academic programs in North Carolina because I went to a magnet school in Greensboro. Um, I went to Governor School, which was publicly funded, so it didn't cost anything. The magnet school didn't cost anything. And then I went to the School of Science and Math, which is a public boarding school, which didn't cost anything. I mean, we couldn't have afforded. The quality of these programs would have cost I money other places, I think. But North Carolina has had, I'm not sure (laughs) where it stands right now, has had such a strong public school and just university system, schooling system, that I feel like I was a real recipient of that. It's hard for me to imagine where I would be without NCSSM, without Governor's School. Governor's School is where I discovered I wanted to be a singer because I went to choral camp. And where would I have been without the Greensboro Youth Chorus? I don't know. So I'm a real product of very North carolina institutions. And I'm very aware and I'm very clear about how much that shaped me leading up to Oberlin and beyond. So I'm very much a product of North Carolina programs.
0: There's a lot of musical history here in the city that I'm eager to chase down more. Glenn
2: Perkins, curator of community history at the Greensboro History Museum.
0: Having somebody like Rhiannon Giddens, who really is this figure of national and international stardom and repute, it it really helps bring that focus back to the, the sounds and influences that echo around Greensboro. Growing
2: up in a place that was a battleground of the civil rights era, suited Ann and Giddens.
1: Greensboro's an interesting place because in some places, it's actually quite desegregated, you know, in terms of one of my favorite places I like to talk about is K&W Cafeteria. (laughs) Because it's like going there, I feel, I felt, and I still feel like so at home because I see black people, I see white people. You know, it's a lot of people from the class that I grew up in, like either rural people or working class or just a certain kind of strata that I recognize really well and am very comfortable in, but you just see all shades of all colors there. And, and, you know, I look at my old class photos and the classes were actually pretty mixed. And it's very interesting to think about that and to think that was just like my unthinking surrounding. I just saw black and white people together, but then I, there are also spheres where they were separated, you know, and I also had, you know, I had a hard time at school because I was mixed and didn't know, like you would still see in the cafeterias, even though the classes were mixed in the cafeterias, everybody sitting with their own
2: color. For all that, segregation did not go down without a fight in Greensboro. Even before the legendary 1960 Woolworth's lunch
3: counter sit-in, desegregation was a battle that raged for years. If you're here for any length of time, you really start to feel that that history and that legacy. Tiva Berkeley. In a lot of ways, it's a very proud legacy, but in a lot of ways, it's a very difficult legacy, the legacy of civil rights here. Those battles are still being fought by many people that look like me and allies that don't look like me and just represent other cultures. And I think that it's really fun and present that we get to participate in that actively. The city's history is rich also problematic at times these conversations don't always evolve and happen in the ways that they could or as quickly as they could and that story itself is a big story of the blues as well the art form that was developed for people to share their truth publicly while often having to hide it in plain sight the use of coded language and terms and references that could be understood by those for whom it was intended but maybe not by everyone
1: growing up mixed kind of makes you especially like i've got a very ethnically ambiguous face so i've, I've been mistaken for everything under the sun anything with a vague brown tint, <laughs> i've been mistaken for sometimes by people from those countries you know it's not always people from elsewhere so what what that does, it, it's kind of destabilizing in one way, but on the other hand, it also, you're always considering the other point of view. And I was also, me and my sister were kind of going back and forth between the two sides of my family, and you learn how to adapt and to code switch, as we say, and I see that in my what I'm interested in in my music. So what I'm interested in is where the crossroads are, where this sounds like this, but then it's also this later on top of it. And why is that? And that's the thing that really interests me. And so that, I think that's what comes out in my music because, I mean, even my current um, projects with my partner, Francesco Teresi, are all about that. You know, all about where do things meet and what happens when they do, because it's such a huge part of American music. But, you know, the narrative gets streamlined and a lot of those really interesting bumps get flattened out. But the bumps are where the interesting things are. And so I'm always looking for those. And I think that's probably because I got used to never feeling like I was completely belonging anywhere. I just got used to thinking in different ways.
2: It's also fitting that beach music, which arose in the Jim Crow era with white audiences dancing to black R&B, is another style with deep roots in Greensboro. Here again is Park Peterball.
5: Few people called it beach music then. That's what it eventually became known as. Uh, There's two components to it. There's the music and there's the dance. Beach music and shag dancing. Uh, They go together. You can't have one without the other. You know, Greensboro is given the world some of the best shag dancers. Four or five of the very best and most noted celebrated shag dancers came from a little mill village uh, near Cone Mills called McAdoo Heights, a little neighborhood called McAdoo Heights. And uh, you know, these were, these were kids who, who grew up in and around the mills and and they took to to dancing and they became part of those guys that would thumb to the beach without a dime in their pocket and just sort of make their own way uh, down there just to dance just to be around the music that's a very interesting thing if you want to talk about black and white kind of intermingling uh, before segregation became the law of the land, these guys were getting into black music and black dancing styles. And uh, to me, it was a form of
3: de facto integration. Authenticity is really important when you're talking about culture. Here is Atiba Berkeley from the Piedmont Blues Preservation Society. And we couldn't have a conversation about the blues and about beach music specifically without talking about segregated beaches in North Carolina. Without talking about the KKK attacking this establishment owned by a black man and from New York, and the fact that while scholars will likely never fully acknowledge that this is fact, oral history has been the legacy of the blues and legacy of cultures of the African diaspora and uh, is valid whether Western scholars put it so or not.
2: In the world of beach music, the dancing as well as the music came from African-Americans.
3: A woman, I believe her name is Cynthia Harris, went back and forth to New York. She was a hostess at the club and her nickname was Shag. And she was infamous for dancing and teaching dances, going to New York and coming back and bringing dances. The black communities of the Carolinas believe that Cynthia Shag Harris is the impetus of what is known as Carolina Shag as a dance and culture. Uh, in beach music, which is really um, important to acknowledge. There was
2: a time when old-time music almost died out completely as an African-American style in Central North Carolina. But the late Joe Thompson, an old-time fiddler from Mebane, a half hour from Greensboro, kept the music alive and passed it on to Rand and Giddens and Carolina Chocolate Drops in their early days.
4: Joe Thompson played, he's an African-American man that played black fiddle music and black banjo music.
2: That's Tim Duffy from Music Maker Relief Foundation.
4: Blacks were forced to play the fiddle under the white master during plantation time. They were actually educated and actually sent to Europe to learn to play classical music and come home and entertain the plantation owners and their families. And the fiddle was just the most ubiquitous instrument in the South, pre 1900 and the banjo. But as soon as they got emancipation, emancipation and came and they had freedom of movement. The Sears, the Sears Roebuck catalog, flooded uh, the market with guitars they dropped the fiddle pretty fast and there was a few fiddler players and a few of it mighty few and Joe's one of the families that kept that tradition going but you know and what we discovered we all knew you know folklorists knew, but Rhiannon and Justin and Dom really brought to fore that the banjo and fiddle music is not pre-minstrel music which was a very degrading form of entertainment in America where people put on blackface and pretended to be Negro musicians and play black uh, music. There was actual people, black folks, playing fiddle and banjo and creating great music like Dixie. Tunes that we take for granted were written. Like uh, Anything interesting about American music has something roots in African-American culture somewhere. And Joe Thompson was a great exponent of that music and kept it going. And he lived to be in his 90s.
2: In Rhiannon and Giddens and Carolina Chocolate Drops, Joe Thompson found a worthy successor.
1: The self-fulfilling prophecies tend to become cemented. And previously, black spaces have turned into white spaces in terms of when you look at like Black people not being allowed to go to the first fiddle conventions or the first fiddling competitions when there were tons of black fiddlers who were really good. That kind of thing, happen. it'll turn over in a generation. So it's like trying to find out the real history of these spaces and there have been black classical musicians and opera singers forever, you know, just in terms of what they were allowed to do. That's obviously changed now in the recent history, but in the past, it was a much harder road to hope. but people have always wanted to do these things. And it's frustrating because when you don't see yourself reflected in a music, like in a genre or something, it's not as easy for you to go, maybe I can do that. It's a lot harder.
2: But Rhiannon and Giddens didn't fully turn back toward folk music until returning to North Carolina after college and meeting Joe Thompson.
1: I've started getting into old-time music and then learning about the black part of old-time music. And then CeCe Conway, somebody directed me to CeCe Conway, and then he she said, have you ever heard of Joe Thompson? I was like, who? I mean, I was so shocked. And to find out that he'd been in my family's hometown of Mebane this whole time, I was just like, because I I went down there for family reunions every year. I couldn't believe he was there. So I met up and I got to play with him once. And then he had a stroke. And then he recovered. And and there's some really wonderful people who helped him get back into playing. And then he was at the reunion. So I I went and saw him. Or not the reunion. It was the first one, the Black Banjo Gathering. And I went and saw him there. And that's where I met, of course, Dom and Justin. I can't even. It's like life before Joe and after Joe, to be honest. It's like. He gave such purpose to the Carolina Chocolate Drops. I mean, there there would be no Carolina Chocolate Drops without Joe. I don't think Dom or Justin would argue with me on that one. Like we actually created the group to center Joe's music and the Black String Band tradition and regional music from North Carolina. And I didn't leave classical music because I didn't like it. I left classical music because I didn't feel like there was anything I had to say that was important enough to spend all my time doing it. I remember having that epiphany what can I do that a million sopranos can't do right now singing verdi and mozart and you know what does it mean and so when I found the banjo I figured out what I was here for I think the best way to be in the music industry is to have a mission and to have a center and so what Joe did was he provided us that mission and also when your teacher is 86 to begin with of course he got older as we knew him but when we started out he was 86 when your teachers of that generation It just also puts things in perspective as a young music maker. I was 26. The guys were younger. And I I think it just set us up in the right way. A lot of people enter in the music industry about what can it do for me? What can I do? You know, and it's ego. And it's like when you are playing music to glorify a tradition, to talk about community, it's very hard to egoistic about that I mean you can be <laughs> I'm sure we were at moments but like I feel like it set me up in a right in the right spot for the rest of my career to be honest to have that be the beginning because I, I did opera I sang you know and all that stuff but I never did it as a professional career before I, w- I was trying to get to the Met so this was my first professional experience and I'm super grateful to have him in my life
2: under Joe Thompson's mentorship. The Drops learned the old folk and blues styles in history, to which they added their own modern-day spin, like covering R&B singer Blue Cantrell's 2001 hit, Hit'em Up style, as a fiddle-tune hoedown.
1: While he was scheming, I was beaming, and his beamer just beaming. Can't believe that I called my man cheating, so I found another way to make him pay for it all.
2: The Chocolate Drops won a Best Traditional Folk <laughs> Grammy Award for 2010's Genuine Negro Jig, which even made the pop charts. Giddens has reached even greater heights as a solo act, including a 2017 MacArthur Genius Grant Fellowship and co leading the African Americana supergroup, Our Native Daughters. In recent years, Rhiannon Giddens has returned to classical with a number of opera projects. She's also crafted a polyglot fusion of classical and world music with her current partner, Italian multi-instrumentalist, Francesco Teresi. But whatever style she's playing, those Greensboro roots are never far away.
1: Through the banjo is how I've gotten back into classical music, I wouldn't have gotten any of these things if I hadn't already made a career for myself as a banjo player. And then things happened and somehow like the NC Symphony had a tape that had my classical singing on it. So they had me come audition. So I was able to keep maintaining a little bit of that foot in that world. So I was singing with symphonies and then I started getting my own songs arranged. So it kept me like I would do a few every year and it kept me in that world, you know, and then Aria Code came. Well, the opera came, the commission from Spoleto and then Aria Code. And it's just, I'm, turning around going, how? I'm seeing two John Adams arias with <laughs> the Chamber Orchestra of Los Angeles at a festival a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, how did this happen? You know what I mean? So this is also what I tell people. It's like, you never know how you're going to end up doing something. And none of the things that you do are wasted. None of that time I spent with classical music was wasted. I'm so over the moon that I can now engage with that world in a way that's very honest to me and get to do the things that I like about it. I mean, I love the music and I love the world and in, in doing Omar, I feel like it's the the way that I can, because there's a Joe Thompson tune in Omar. I'm like pulling in all of, the, all of the stuff that I am. There's the square dance. It's very exciting to be able to take all of the things that I've been doing for the last 20 years and to put it into an opera. That's basically what I'm doing. A lot of stuff written on banjo. So the orchestra is a banjo. And I love that because I feel like that's the way I can make a mark in classical music. I finally figured it out, but it just took me 20 years of doing something else and coming back to it.
2: Meanwhile, the Gate City of Greensboro continues to embody a spirit of eclecticism as a place where a musician can pick up a working knowledge of Piedmont blues or opera singing, or both. Here is Park Peterball.
5: Something about Greensboro that holds on to the people who come from here. They don't necessarily want to escape from it. It's a really pleasant, small city. It kind of works, it's the ideal size. We're just big enough to get some things and small enough not to have to put up with some big city headaches. I've just known a lot of people, people who I thought as musicians could bust out, could go to LA and make it on the studio scene or you know, find fame and fortune. They're content to stay here about because they like their life here.
0: There is a lot of exploration with musical forms here in Greensboro. Again, Glenn Perkins at the Greensboro History Museum. The hip-hop scenes are really deep and touch a wide range of different kinds of performers. Justin Demeanor Harrington, who's a hip-hop artist who uses banjo and traditional music forms along, but, but hip-hop vocals and rap and in order to connect both with current social issues, but related to tie back to the history. That's one's really interesting. And we've also got the North Carolina Folk Festival here in Greensboro. So you see a lot of other acts coming through and that folk festival kind of working to cultivate local music knowledge, local music sharing of traditions as well.
1: Even if I'm not doing a song about North Carolina or necessarily from North Carolina, it's, it's in the DNA of the music that I do. The diversity of North Carolina, the history it's such an interesting state, and it's very rich, and I, it's very deep in my musical bones, for sure. It's always going to be a part of what I do.
2: If it's not yet clear where all this is going to wind up, the journey will continue for Rhian and Giddens and other artists from Greensboro. And that's a wrap for this edition of Carolina Calling, exploring the history of North Carolina music. Join us on our next stop across the Old North State, Durham. Carolina Calling is a production of The Bluegrass Situation in Come Here, North Carolina. This episode was written by Jenna Warnecke, Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs, Chris Jacobs, and me, David Minconi. Produced by Shelby Williamson and Justin Hiltner. Edited by Chris Jacobs and associate editor, Jenna Warnecke. Special thanks to executive producer Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs at The Bluegrass Situation and Billy Maupin with Come Here, North Carolina. Our theme music is the song Eerie Fiddler, written and recorded by Andrew Marlin. The roots of American music run deep in North Carolina. Learn more by visiting comeherenc.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps us introduce the show to new listeners. Discover more Roots music podcasts at thebluegrasssituation.com. I'm David Mincone. Thanks for listening.